Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we're very excited to have Tom Farrell, the president, CEO, and chairman of Dominion Energy to join with us to talk about some exciting new adventures. Let's talk right off, Tom, and and thank you for joining us, about the big splash you're making in wind uh, with a commitment of $8 billion of potential development offshores, primarily off of uh, Virginia territory. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. We've announced that we plan on submitting uh, applications for about 2,600 megawatts of uh, offshore wind off the Virginia coast, about 26 miles offshore, so almost invisible uh, from the shoreline. Uh, It'll be a utility-owned asset, so it'll be the first one built in federal waters. It'll be the only one that's owned and operated uh, by a, a utility in the United States, and it will be the largest <coughs> offshore wind farm uh, in uh, the United States, really in North America, uh, and uh, something we've been working on for uh, quite a long time. Some people seem to think it just sort of uh, developed uh, over the last few months. Uh, the offshore lease was auctioned by Bohm in 2013, uh, we were the successful bidder uh, for 118,000 acres offshore of Virginia, single leasehold. Uh, and since that time, we've been working very hard uh, to figure out the best technology, most efficient technology, the most cost-effective technology, uh, who the best partners are, understanding the worldwide supply chain, uh, because it's a sort of brand-new industry in the United States. This is really a huge development, uh, and utilities are not known for being risk takers, or at least not uh, making imprudent risk uh, part of their uh, game plan. So with $100 billion of assets at Dominion, this is a sizable commitment. Um, Could you give us some of your thinking on why do you think wind power is ready for prime time and and, uh, and talk about that prime time. Do you think this is going to start growing very fast offshore um, United States? Well, the, uh, after working on it for all these years, um, we do believe uh, it's ready for prime time. You mentioned $8 billion. Uh, that is the sticker price that we would pay if it was done today. This, we will continue to work on the development, and we think as the market in the industry matures in the United States, that number will come down. How much? I don't know. Uh, but we're going to make every effort to bring it down because, uh, in the end, this is going to be a fully regulated utility asset uh, for which we need uh, approval from our uh, state regulators uh, to uh, go forward with. Uh, it is strongly supported by the governor of Virginia, uh, and we think. Uh, many policymakers. Uh, it's strongly supported by the business community in the Tidewater uh, area part of the state. Uh, many environmental groups, obviously I wouldn't speak for them, they can speak for themselves, uh, seem to be 
uh, supportive of it. Uh, so it's something our customers are very interested in and our employees are very interested in. So we're, uh, we decided that we had done enough uh, background work to proceed. Now, there's lots of things that have to happen. Uh, we need continued public policy support in Virginia. Uh, one of the things that people aren't thinking about very much is the fact that uh, uh, we don't have in the United States waters a Jones Act vessel that is, uh, can install these machines. So we need to work on Jones Act vessel, but there's a number of people working on that, a number of groups. Specifically, that would be U.S. flagged vessels being able to work on this project? Yes. The most efficient way, it doesn't have to be a Jones Act ship, but the most efficient way to do it would be with a Jones Act ship, a U.S. flagged vessel, which means it has to be built in the U.S., crewed by U.S. crews, and owned by U.S. owners. These, I take it, 27 miles off of Virginia Beach, uh, will be very deep water, will they not? They won't be anchored on the ocean bottom, or will they? No, they actually will be in the water because the water's not deep. Uh, I know what, I can understand why you would think that, but the continental, that's why Virginia is such an excellent place to do this. Uh, the continental shelf uh, goes out, I think, more than 50 miles uh, off the coast of Virginia. So 26 miles out, it's 80 feet of water, eight zero feet of water. 2,600 megawatts uh, for this project, that, that would be a, uh, a nuclear power plant plus some in terms of, of the amount of energy it would produce. Um, do you th- think that these will be coming up on other regions, of the, particularly the Northeast? Um, just back of envelope, we check with some industry sources, and there have been announced projects for New York State of 9,000 megawatts, New Jersey, potentially 7,500, Maryland, 1,200, Connecticut, 2,000, Massachusetts, 3,200. Do you think this is about to really uh, reach a tipping point and, and take off? Uh, well, there, there's development working all up to the north of us, uh, for sure. Uh, those will all be unregulated projects, so they won't be owned by the utilities. Uh, there are utilities investing in them. Uh, but I don't believe any of them are utility assets, as this would be uh, 100% owned by the by the utility and subject to uh, state regulatory rules. Um, and uh, I think there's a long way to go to get those get those numbers that you're talking about. One of the advantages we have is not a, not only the shallow water so far out, so you don't run into any into visibility issues. Uh, some folks, uh, understandably, don't want to. They have these beautiful views that they're used to, and they don't want to look off their beach and see a big industrial complex uh, right there. Uh, So ours will be not visible or barely visible uh, over the horizon. Uh, And we're not in, for example, in any commercial fisheries uh, where we are. Uh, We've run the traps. It has been. We have two test turbines that are going uh, in. They'll be uh, installed this summer. Uh, the distribution line that brings the power to shore is, is being laid now. Uh, and so we've been through the whole permitting process with BOEM. We kind of learned together uh, what needs to be done in federal waters. Uh, we have been uh, working uh, very closely with an EPC contractor for us, uh, uh, Orsted, uh, headquartered in Copenhagen. Uh, they are uh, world leaders in offshore wind development. Uh, they've been a great 
uh, person for us to be working with on this project. What's the characteristic of the wind out there? And uh, what percentage of the time do you think these wind turbines will be actually cranking out power for you? Well, we've been, uh, they've been taking data off of the Virginia coast for many, many years. I mean, the world's largest naval bank uh, is not technically in the town of Virginia Beach, but it's right where we're talking about. It's in the city of Norfolk, the Norfolk Naval Bank. Uh, and so there's all sorts of wind data accumulated and collected, and wave data, and current data, and all the things you need to know. I think our IR, the, the uh, Integrated Resource Plan, view of potential for offshore wind, I think, is registering about 42% capacity factor, uh, likely higher than that, but that's we're going to go with a very conservative number, uh, which is quite a bit higher. Onshore wind is not a great resource in the southeast U.S. Uh, it's just not windy enough uh, unless you go to mountaintops, uh, and that has all sorts of other issues uh, for, for folks uh, on, the, on the visual envelope. Uh, so... Uh, there is one offshore, one onshore wind farm uh, is going forward in Virginia. Uh, I think it's 70 megawatts or there about 70, somewhere around 70 megawatts. Uh, and, but the offshore wind uh, resource is much, much better. When uh, we talk about that degree of availability, will this be a, a baseload kind of asset for you or, or how would you be using it? Uh, it'll, when the wind's blowing, it'll run. Um, for sure, but I, I think using relying on renewables as base load is not the best uh, policy for utility. How will you have to evolve the rest of your generation fleet to accommodate this um, resource once it comes online? Would you have to be building more peakers? Will you be using natural gas to back it up? What, what's your plan there? Well, uh, we have uh, four reactors uh, in Virginia. Uh, very highly efficient, very, very, very high capacity factors. So they'll be part of the resource. Uh, we are, we have some very large, uh, brand new vintage gas uh, combined cycles that run base load. Uh, we're building uh, a great deal of solar uh, in Virginia. We went from last place in solar in the country to fourth in five years fourth largest utility company uh, for owning uh, solar resources and a lot more being built. Um, we have the world's largest electric battery is in Virginia, actually, and uh, uh, we operated the 3,200 megawatt pump storage facility in the Virginia mountains, which is as close as you can get to, a, to storage at scale. Uh, so that would be, uh, that'll be quite useful uh, being paired uh, with this offshore wind farm. We operate it. We own 60% of it. So theoretically, one way that could work is the wind generated at night when you're not at peak could be stored and used at other times in the day? Yeah, absolutely. And we're looking at building another pump storage facility uh, in in the Virginia mountains, southwest uh, Virginia mountains. And But you're also going to, with all these renewables we're bringing online, and we're bringing on a lot, uh, we will undoubtedly need gas peaking for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll talk about some of the innovative approaches you're using with gas in, in a moment. But uh, one of the things that it's said about offshore wind, particularly off the Northeast, is there's an aversion to building large transmission power, uh, transmission lines over densely populated areas. Do you think wind assets off of your shores and 
to the north of you is a way to avoid that problem and, and bring energy onshore where the population is? Uh, certainly. I mean, this transmission line, uh, what we're building now is really just a distribution line, but obviously it'll be a transmission uh, for this when we build out. It's going to be done at three tranches in 2024, 2025, 2026 to build out all 2,600 megawatts. It'll be a transmission uh, asset bringing it back onshore. We've got this facility already uh, developed onshore. It'll be expanded. It's on a it's on a National Guard installation, actually. Uh, and it'll then just feed into our distribution and transmission network uh, from there, the, the network that already exists. So we won't have to, uh, right now, that probably there will have to be some uh, expanded just transmission in the future. But for what our needs are for certainly the next decade, we don't see that uh, happening just because of the wind farm. So a while back, I think it was over a decade ago, uh, there was an organization, an outfit called Atlantic Wind Connection, I think it was, where Google and a Japanese trading company and others yep. were going to put a transmission line off the Atlantic. Um, do, do you see something like that having some value beyond what you're doing here? And would the ability to plug into that help your project plans? And I, don't, I don't think it would uh, impact us one way or another. Do you see any value in possibly building offshore transmission? I don't see how it would be valuable to uh, Virginia, but it, I could see where it might be more valuable up in the Northeast, where they're all uh, they're going to have multiple owner own, multiple wind farms with multiple owners. I, I don't know. Okay. The the other question I want to ask you is, uh, as you know, offshore wind is proven quite popular off the coast of Europe. Yeah where there's close to 20,000 megawatts of offshore wind, 4,500 turbines in 11 countries, representing an investment of over $11 billion. Do you think that we're going to ramp up and it's become as valuable to us as it is to Europe? Uh, well, I've not, I wouldn't compare Europe and the U.S. particularly, uh, but uh, for many reasons. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, the largest, biggest reason being the geography. Uh, the uh, you know the resource sort of in the U.S. kind of peters out uh, when you get to North Carolina because uh, you, you're going to have to get into deep water and there's more hurricane, uh, et cetera. And I haven't I haven't heard of anybody looking at developing uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida coastline. So you you look at the northeast you northeast Atlantic sort of kind of from North Carolina up uh, to Canada. I'm not sure why you wouldn't do it up Canada, but we're blessed where we are with this continental shelf, which goes out a long way. And I don't think you'll see it develop much in the Pacific at all, because you go deep water very quickly off the west coast. Uh, so uh, you know we we have 300 and. 50 million people or whatever the number is in the United States. Uh, and obviously it's not going to do any good in the central part of that, of that population uh, where in Europe they're kind of ringed by uh, waterways. Mm -hmm. What about your own projects? You're looking at 2,600 megawatts by 2026 for a possible investment of $8 billion, which you're going to work hard to shave down. What are your thoughts beyond that? Could you be doubling this down the road, or are you, 
Are you taking any long-term plans? You're talking about wind? Offshore wind, yeah. No, this will use up the whole leasehold. This 2,600 megawatts will use up the, the, what, what we own offshore Virginia. Uh, the rest of the leaseholds are all bought up and under development, as far as I know. Let's Let's turn to... Uh, you mentioned natural gas and the need for peaking, and you're doing some rather innovative projects to capture renewable gas supplies from uh, farms. Uh, you have one venture with Smithfield Foods for $500 million, and uh, just this month you um, announced a $200 million venture with Vanguard Renewables. Talk about that technology and what you think the promise is nationally for tapping into that farm waste source of methane? Sure. Uh, so first, uh, Dominion has the largest RNG program in the nation uh, by a wide margin. Uh, and it is through our uh, partnership with Smithfield Vanguard and others. Uh, there's other partnerships we've announced uh, in the western part of the U.S. Uh, and there, it's an enormously valuable resource uh, environmentally because RNG, of course, for all your listeners may not know exactly what it is. It's renewable natural gas. Uh, it uh, comes from it's almost pure methane. And uh, in, in what we're looking at right now, and that probably will get expanded over the years, but right now it's hog waste and uh, waste from dairy, mostly dairy cows, but all, porn, all, all cattle. Uh, and uh, you, the technology is very straightforward right now. Uh, the waste is collected, and it it emits methane directly into the atmosphere. Methane is 25 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. What we're doing here in our partnerships, and the, importantly, the other the other leg of the partnership is farmers, uh, who uh, we all together make capital investments. You basically are putting large uh, collection systems over these what they call lagoons. Uh, collects, it traps the methane from escaping into the atmosphere. Uh, it takes it, we lay piping, brings it into uh, a processing facility that it doesn't take very much to pure, to just get liquids out. And, uh, and liquids, I mean, we'd like the liquids to show up in gas streams, like propane and uh, all those, ethylene, all those things, not some other kind of liquids. Uh, are taken out, and then it's immediately put into the distribution system or a gas pipeline system where it serves customers, uh, and it, it's converted to carbon dioxide. So people say, well, what's the value of that? Well, the value of that is you've taken, you've left natural gas in the ground that you otherwise would have needed to produce to meet customers' needs, and you've replaced it with pure methane going straight into the atmosphere and you've, you've taken that pure methane and reduced it from tw- by 25 times its climate impact. Uh, so uh, it's a tremendous uh, uh, investment for the environment uh, and for uh, and particularly the farmers uh, who benefit from the, this new business for them. So what's the scale for Dominion on this? Do you expect to, this to be a sizable part of your business a decade or two from now? Uh, well, we're a very large business, as you know, so... Uh, it'll be uh, something that we invest in, but I, I, it's all a matter of uh, order of magnitudes. Uh, we'll invest in it as much as we can invest in it. Do you have any sense of, of what what the positive contribution 
uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions uh, could be if this catches on and is deployed around the country? It, it could be a very important uh, tool, uh, but you need a lot of tools in this toolbox to make any make real progress. But it'll be a very important tool uh, that we are uh, contributing to. The other, the other project, uh, small scale, but it, it caught my eye because it, it, of um, the population you're going to be addressing is your school bus program, where you're going to be deploying over a thousand electric buses uh, in Virginia school districts. Talk about how you conceive of that and, and what role you think that might play in, in educating consumers of tomorrow about all these renewable technologies. Well, so what we, we started, a uh, number of utilities have been working around the edges of electric school buses, um, and we spent a lot of time looking at it and decided that, you know, if we're going to do this, the, the only way for it to make a difference is to do it at a large scale. Uh, so, actually, our plan, Marty, is to replace every school bus in our service territory, which today is 13,000. Uh, what we've announced is we would do a pilot for 50 buses. Uh, we have selected the vendors. We're in the process of down-selecting the school systems that will get the buses. Uh, and then with public policy support, by 2025, we would have replaced 1,000, and by 2030, we'll, we will have replaced all 13,000. So the concept is uh, that, uh, you know, just think about what a school bus does every day. It's got a very uh, set uh, schedule. It's, they're out early in the morning, and then they go park, and then they go out, out in the afternoon, and then they park before the peak, uh, of our peak of electric usage. And they also are, uh, most of them are sitting idle all summer long. Uh, if you think about an electric school bus, uh, it's a big giant battery that we are, will connect to our grid and we will charge it and discharge it. We'll discharge it as we need it for peak shaving. Uh, so if you think about a, just a parking area for parking lot for school buses, uh, it's particularly true in urban and suburban areas. Uh, it's just a big battery array. So the concept is we will purchase two-thirds of the bus, and the local school system will purchase the other third of the bus. Uh, we will have ownership of all the electric components. We will install all the charging equipment and discharging equipment, and all of that will become part of our utility rate base. That's where we need public policy support uh, to go beyond the 50 buses. Uh, and uh, it's been, we've gotten fantastic uh, uh, response to this from school boards. They all want, every one of them that we ran into wanted all 50 buses from the pilot. So the, the cost savings for them on operations and maintenance is in the order of 60%, correct? Yeah, at least. And here's something that we don't, that people don't think about, uh, but it's, I think probably more important than that, Marty, is the capital cost. If you look at local school systems, their biggest capital cost is their buildings. Their second largest capital cost is school buses. Uh, and if you can come find a way to replace that capital cost that they're having to spend on school buses to buy new ones, replace older ones, even if it's just over time, we're, buying, we're providing two-thirds of the capital to buy those buses. So that frees up capital dollars 
that can be deployed into schools. Uh, so uh, I, I think I will be frankly surprised uh, if this isn't a, a model that's adopted widely. So what are your regulators telling you about this? They like it? They want to learn more? Uh, well, the public policymakers, our governor is very enthusiastic about it. He, uh, he and I announced the initiative together, actually, at a joint news conference. Uh, and uh, the policymakers in our, in our state legislature seem to be uh, very interested in it. Uh, you can stay tuned and watch what happens. We'll see. Our legislature convenes in a couple of weeks. And um, in Virginia, this is what we call a so-called long session. And they'll be adjourned by the first week in March. So uh, for the year. So all of this, it, we'll see what happens. May or may not come up this year, may or may not pass this year. But uh, we think there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. You joined uh, Dominion, I believe, back in 2004. Five. Uh, actually, well, no, I actually joined the company in 1995. I became the chief operating officer in 2004 and the chief executive officer in 2006. Okay. So in those several decades, um, Things have changed quite a bit to the the point that you're envisioning $8 billion investment in offshore wind, investment in electric school buses, working with farmers to harvest methane, waste methane, uh, and put it to productive use, tackling climate change. How how does one prepare for for a change in mission of that magnitude coming to work each day, is it a new kind of refreshing challenge? Um, do you think you have the skill set? What will leaders of tomorrow in this industry need to be able to do to face the kind of opportunities and challenges that we've discussed for the last half hour? Well, uh, innovation has been, uh, I know most people don't think of utilities being super innovative, uh, but uh, innovation has been a part of our company's DNA from it beginning, which was in 1785, uh, when we started as a, as a canal company uh, in, along the Appomattox River uh, in Virginia. Uh, and we, we got into transportation through canals, and then we got into transportation through horse-drawn carriages and mule-drawn carriages, and then we became a streetcar company that was hauling streetcars up hills in R- Richmond. It's quite hilly, by the way. Uh, and actually the first electric streetcar company in the country was, believe it or not, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and uh, we created it, uh, our company did, and we uh, then decided there's a lot more you can do with the electricity thing and built up uh, what became Virginia Power, which is now Dominion Energy Virginia. Uh, we were uh, leaders in development of nuclear energy. Uh, we built the world's largest pump storage facility, literally the world's largest pump storage facility. Uh, we have been reluctant to go whole, uh, until the last few years. We have been reluctant to go uh, deeply into renewable energy sources because we didn't think they were cost-effective uh, and their intermittency needs to be dealt with. Uh, and as they become more and more cost-efficient, you, you'll see where our, you can see where our investments have gone. They've gone into solar. Uh, which has become very cost-effective, uh, and it's going to start having issues. We're going to start pushing on land use because it uses an enormous amount of land. Uh, uh, we were one of the very first GE gas turbines installed in the United States. We're installed at one of our, our power plants. So 
So we have long been uh, uh, innovative and leaders in innovation in our industry, uh, an industry that's not overly known for it, I recognize. Uh, but we've been uh, doing a lot with grid mod. Uh, we have done a lot with voltage control. Uh, we one of the leading cybersecurity companies in the United States for among utilities, uh, partly because of who our customer base is. Uh, so uh, it's something that we work hard on. We have a one of the first company in the industry to have a chief innovation officer. We have a uh, we have a board committee that spends all its time on sustainability. Uh, and corporate governance. Uh, so we, we do a lot. Uh, and uh, a couple of years ago, we've had a series four values that we have lived by here, Marty, for, I don't know, 15 more, more than that years, which were very simple and straightforward. And, and uh, all the employees take very, very seriously, which is safety, ethics, excellence, and teamwork. Uh, and in about a year and a half ago, we uh, introduced a fifth value, which we put in fourth place uh, on our list, uh, which is embrace change. Uh, it's, uh, it, we're seeing dramatic changes in our workforce uh, that we need to celebrate uh, and take advantage of. And we're seeing increasing changes in technologies uh, that can make us and our, uh, our customers, frankly, uh, more sustainable. Uh, that's what our customers want, our policymakers, and all of our employees want. Uh, and it's what our management wants and our board of directors want. So uh, we've made great strides. Uh, we've reduced carbon emissions by over 50% at our company, which is twice the average of our industry. People don't pay attention to that. We're far and away the leaders, far and away the leaders uh, in our industry in reducing methane uh, leakage from our gas pipeline infrastructure system. No one else is even close to us in that. We're very proud of those accomplishments, and, uh, but we have a lot more to do, and we're going to do it. You know that I know that you co-wrote and produced a, a movie about the Civil War, Field of Lost Shoes. If you were going to put together a film about your company evolving from a canal company to an offshore wind power, do you think you'd be able to get it produced? <laughs> Well, I produced that other one myself, so I don't know. The, uh, it's actually uh, quite a story. Uh, maybe one, maybe it wouldn't be a feature film like the last one was, but I'll give that a Marty thing. Well, we'll be watching for the clips of, of what goes up offshore and on the farms and in, in your bus yards for your local school districts. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening to Grid Talk, and thanks to Tom Farrell for sharing his insights about some profound changes coming to Dominion Energy and the entire electric industry. You have been listening to Grid Talk. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, please check out our site at smartgrid.gov where you can subscribe and learn about upcoming programs. We encourage you to give the podcast a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. And finally, if you have any suggestions, feedback, or questions, please email us at gridtalk at nrel.gov. Thank you and have a nice day. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.